Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Uh, that's who made up a lot of times Jesus' audience. In fact, he was kind of criticized a little bit for like, you just have the poor people that come and listen to you. And he's like, I know, isn't it great? And they're like, well, you know. So uh, we, we thought, well, okay, how could we release some of our modern Western mindset and perhaps see things uh, differently through through some of their eyes? And so we've been looking at a few different parables. Uh, we started out two weeks ago in, the, in, in week one talking about uh, the two debtors. Uh, and then in week two, it was the, the Good Samaritan. And in both of those ones, you're probably like, you know, I've owed people money before and I've done things for people that they didn't expect. So that's great. Uh, today, we're talking about the rich fool and you don't feel rich. So this one feels like, oh, I get a free pass Sunday, but that's not necessarily true as I think we're gonna come to find out. If you happen to miss any of the first two parts of the series and you're interested, uh, there's an app that you can download, the East Lake Tri-Cities, just search your favorite app store uh, and you'll find it. Uh, you'll also be able to find out uh, any notes that I go through, any texts or verses that I kind of fly through, or uh, if you don't wanna write things down, it, if there's a little notes tab on there, you can kind of click along there and follow along if you want. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today, verse 13 through 21 is the section. I'm going to read it in its entirety, the parable of the rich fool. Um, and then we'll kind of go back through verse by verse. And just like in previous uh, weeks that we've looked at, he doesn't start off by telling, he doesn't like... Um, uh, he doesn't sit people down and say, the occasion calls for a parable. Let me, let me do it. He's in a conversation with somebody and in, in an effort to illustrate a point, he'll go into a fictionalized story uh, that everybody there would hear as once upon a time, there was a certain rich man, right? And so I don't think that he's, this story actually happened, just so you know, I, but I do think he's trying to illustrate a truth. And sometimes we hear truths best in stories, which is why you like movies and which is why their you know, documentaries are so popular. Um, and so that's, it's like, here's a, I'm trying to teach you a virtue. I'm gonna clothe it up in a story format. Uh, and then hopefully you'll listen and learn from it. They always featured something that was common to the people. Uh, everyone would have, uh, when he says there was once a man who lost his sheep, he'd be like, you've lost some things before, right? Uh, there was a man who had a couple of sons and, and relationships were awkward. And people were like, well, we've had family relationships go awkward. So all of them, and all of them, there's this, this commonality piece, um, which I think you'll see in here. We've always, we've had, we know rich people. We've had rich people. We are rich people uh, in, a, in a sense. Um, and then there was also always a call to action. There was always something at the end, an unresolved piece. It was like a, 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 a like a fill in the blank. And how how would you finish this story? And your, if your life is this, choose your own adventure. Which page are you going to sort of turn to uh, and, and go that route? So keep in mind that that's going to stay true in this parable as well. But let's read together. I'm going to put it on the screen here so you can follow along. One of the multitude crowd said to him, Rabbi, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. Random, what, what are you talking about? Kind of out of the blue a little bit. But he, as in Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said to them, which is the audience, now he's gonna turn to them, take heed and be aware of every kind of insatiable desire for life for a person does not consist in the surpluses of his possessions. And then he goes on and now he's gonna tell the parable. And then he told this parable saying, once upon a time, there was a certain rich man whose land brought forth plenty. And he discussed with himself saying, what shall I do for I have no place to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. 
I will pull down my barns and build larger barns and I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. To which we know there's gonna come a transition. There's gonna be a part of the story. He goes on, says this, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and what you have prepared, whose will these things be? Jesus, back to his audiences, so is he who treasures up for himself and is not gathering riches for God. All right, so we read that. We can kind of you know infer some things. At first glance, we read through this. It sounds like a pretty, if you grew up in church, it's a semi-familiar uh, parable uh, having to do with money. Jesus talked a lot, so it makes sense that, that there'd be some parables surrounding that. Uh, but the setting is such that it, it appears as if somebody comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, rabbi, tell one of your followers who also happens to be one of my brothers to give me my fair share of the inheritance. He's asking him to do something for him on his behalf. Apparently, there was a father who passed away. Inheritance was given, but it was split amongst two different people. And the general assumption was that uh, in this kind of day and age, rabbis who were experts at the Torah law, the religious law, would then also be good at other law, like the legal law, um, in the same way that sometimes you've been good at something and somebody assumes that you're also good at something else because you're so good at one thing, right? You are, your lawn looks great. You should be on the HOA. And you're like, I don't think that that equates to the same thing. Um, I am a landscaper, not a like neighborhood politics kind of person. Or somebody at your workplace has come up to you and be like, you're so good at your job. Have you ever thought about management? And you're like, wow, my ego is really stroked right now. I'm feeling really, really good about myself. And then you took that job and you're like, I hate people. I realize that. I don't like people. I like doing things and products. And so you realize in that moment, just because you're good at one thing doesn't make you good at another. Now, if you're into power and if your goal is to accumulate as much influence and power as possible, then this kind of thing can be welcoming news for you. If you're invited to do other things, you're like, well, beyond the HOA means like you get your name in a newsletter. That's like a big deal. And you get to like put that on a resume in case you ever run for politics or something like that. Um, but if you know anything about Jesus, you know he was not in this for the power. And so he his response is, uh, I'm not interested in that sort of thing. In fact, he says, man... What made you? What makes you think that I should be divider or whatever, about, or judge or divider uh, over you? And that word man is like this aggressive, like immediately there's an intonation there that we might not catch, but he's trying to say, come on, man, I know what you're doing here. It, it, it makes us think, was there anything more in the question or makes you should make you think, was there anything more in the question? Because it feels like it's an innocent question a little bit. Hey, you've got somebody that like is your disciple. Would you kind of tell him, my brother, uh, that he owes me a little bit of money and that he needs to make these things happen? But when we, when we dive into it, we realize he's not asking for arbitration, but rather ordering Jesus to sort of carry out his wishes. I have this plan. I need your help with this. Or, in other words, in the way that he says he's your disciple, by the way, it's almost as if this person's coming up to him. You really kind of, I think peasant eyes would have seen this interaction take place and heard the gruffness of this request from this man saying, hey, Jesus, you're about, injust you're about justice, right? Do your job and tell my brother to give me what I'm owed. That's the aggressiveness. Now, see how that like sits a little differently? Like you, you've, you've, maybe you've had some authority at work and somebody said, do your job, tell this person to stop that. And you're like, well, you know, 
you don't get to tell me how to do my job. That's part of it, right? That's, that's one of the things. So that, I think that what first century peasants would see that, is that this person is trying to use Jesus to accomplish something that he wants for himself. And the inheritance in, in question is almost assuredly land. That's how they transferred wealth. That was what they had. That was what they did, which is difficult, if not impossible, to split evenly, right? If you've ever owned property with a family member and, and somebody passed away or somebody wants out or whatever, and you've said, well, let's just divide the land. And you're like, that you can't do that. Like there's water and sewer on this side. You're giving me dirt. You get the water sewer access and all this stuff. Or, you know, if it's, uh, if it's rural, it's like, well, this is super mountainous and that's nice and flat. There is no great way to evenly divide land. You know that it just doesn't work out no matter how you go about it. And if you've never owned land, perhaps you've, you've gone through a divorce or had a friend go through a divorce. And somebody's going, well, you know, we should really keep the house. The kids grew up here and do this. And let's just keep it as stable as possible for, for and it sounds good early on. And then, you know, things get sour, things get sideways. And everybody's like, well, you can buy me out of the house if you want. And you go, oh, there's like this, this tension here. There's like this thing where you're like, there's a sentimentality attached to this building. This is where, this is where our kids grew up. This is the, how, where they lost their tooth. This is where we fought all the time. You want to, let's keep this. We, we want this as kind of a memory of sorts. Uh, and, and you know that you can kind of understand this, why this other brother doesn't perhaps want to sell the land. We grew up here. This is our grandfather's land. He farmed this land. He, you know, land was a sign for them of, uh, of our family heritage. I mean, that was what they, it was super, super powerful. It continues to be powerful, but it, it was especially for them. And so you can understand the division of this stuff. Or if you've ever started a business, with a, with, with a friend, like uh, you hear people who, when you, when you have this idea, we're going to start this business. I'm going to, I've got a business partner and everybody's like, whoa, whoa, be very, very careful. Make sure you get everything down in writing, right? I don't care how close you are. There have been more friendships and family relationships ruined because we went into business together. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was equal and what was fair is like a loose definition. It's just like, oh, it's so messy and it's so tough. It's so, so, with that in mind, we can see the backdrop of the emotions involved in what this brother is asking Jesus to, or ordering Jesus to do in this situation. He's, he's, he's saying, you know, please help me out with this because this has been an awful situation and I'm kind of feeling stuck. One of the backdrops things that, that, that would be in their minds is there's a Psalm. Uh, Psalms were always the songbook of Israel. Um, they would have songs for everything. They would have songs for when a child is born, when we uh, go on an ascent up to Jer the city of Jerusalem, uh, songs of descent when we would leave Jerusalem, songs when we win at war, when we lose a battle, when our friends betray us. Um, so Psalms are, are oftentimes the, the songbook for them. And one of those Psalms is Psalm 133, verse one, which says this, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live in unity together. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the, doesn't that sound awesome? It sounds like, doesn't that sound like, oh, you've been there. You've been like, oh yeah, oil down and running, running down the beard. That's fantastic. Um, I know exactly what that feels like. Uh, we understand like, a different thing. Two weeks ago, we said that this was part of their process. They would wash each other's feet. They would pour oil on their head. That was a, a sign of relaxation or welcoming or whatever like, like this. But the, the concept of how good and pleasant it is when, when two people are able to dwell together in unity, when people with their individual wheels are, are, are able to kind of make it work, let's not lose sight of how unique and special that is. When somebody is married for like 40 or 50 years, when you go to like one of those 40 or 50 year wedding anniversary celebrations and somebody taps a glass and says, speech, 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 and they get up. And the question is always, how did you last for 40 or 50? Tell us the secret. 
what's the secret to longevity in marriage, right? What, what, what do you got to do? What's, how did you do this? And it, it's almost like this is the backdrop. This is the verse that would be like, how lucky and blessed we are to have, have been through all of this and, and, and made these things together. This is, their, this is what they would say. Um, this is the song to sing when, when, you're, when you're in those moments, when you're like, when this works, it's really special. Don't take this for granted. When you're in a business with a partner and, and, and it works, when you're in a family inheritance, when, when somebody in your family passes away and you have to go through that splitting up of the estate, and it goes well, that's not like, oh, it should go well. You should be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We're still friends after all of this, right? How lucky we are to be able to do that. Life doesn't always go in according to plan. Hard things have to happen. And in this scenario, rabbinic law stated that if one heir wanted a division of the inheritance, it should be granted. In the same way that if you came to me and after, you know, this is post paperwork filing of the divorce, we're, we're already through that process, it's done. And now they're like, but she wants the house, man. She wants to sell. She wants to sell the house. So we got to liquidate. And they come to me, and 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 I, I, you know, you're asking, you're looking for advice. You're talking. You're just talking things through. And I'll be like, well, can you pay? Can you give half of? You know, can you buy her out of this thing? And I can't afford to do that. And I'm like, I don't have to tell you. Like the right thing is then uh, not for me to be like, oh, but there's so much sentimentality attached to this. I totally get it. Forgiveness in that way or whatever. The right thing is then, well, we've got to sell the house. I know, but I don't want to. I know you don't want to, but like this is the right thing to do. So this person is coming with the law on their side. The right thing to do would be for my brother to sell the property so that I can get my right of inheritance. And Jesus, aren't you all about injustice? I'm coming to you with a case of injustice. Someone who says they follow you and love you is causing an injustice upon me. And if you care about injustice, you'll do something about it. That's essentially what's taking place with this, right? So then Jesus' response again is, what you actually want is your broken relationship to be finalized by total separation. And I'm not a divider, I'm a reconciler. That is his mission for this. And then Jesus is gonna go and he's gonna take a different angle than probably what we would expect from him. Um, and for sure what the audience, opposite of what the audience would expect. And I read somebody this week who said that this, that Jesus is not showing indifference to the claims of legal justice. Cause I do think that he recognizes this is what has to be done, but was insisting that there is a greater gain than getting an inheritance and a greater loss than losing it. He's like, okay, you're kind of right, but also let me check your assumptions. Let me check some of the things that you believe to be true about this thing. Let me check what you are pinning your hopes and dreams upon, that if you get this, then you'll be happy that you'll finally be okay, that, that uh, you know, whatever, that life will be better if, if this is done. I'm not sure that life will be better for you if this is done. There's a greater loss perhaps than losing it. Then Jesus goes into a proverb or proverbial wisdom sort of piece, and he addresses this to his audience. He goes, this is a great teaching moment. Hang on, hang tight. You get to overhear and, and hear what I'm saying, but then he goes to the audience and he begins to say this. He says to them, take heed and beware of every kind of insatiable desire, for life for a person does not consist in the surpluses of his possessions. And he offers two warnings to his audience in the form of, uh, of kind of these, uh, again, warnings, things that I think that um, he's hoping that the, one of the brothers will overhear and also, I think for us, hoping that in future audiences, Luke would record it, would kind of overhear. That's the position we get to be in. We get to hear him say, listen, uh, number one is this. People are infected with insatiable desires of many kinds. Insatiable meaning not satisfied. Every time you get 
some, you, got, you want more. And then it's more, it's always this quest for more, right? It's this idea of I'm super thirsty, I drink salt water thinking I'm quenching my thirst and it only makes me more thirsty in the process. One of them, one of those insatiable desires is to acquire more possessions. You have and I have within us, he says, you've been infected. This idea of like original sin, like this isn't something you learned or were taught. You have things, your kids have things, right? Your kids have things that you did not teach them. You didn't have to teach them to lie. Maybe you think your spouse taught them to lie and you're like, was it you? You did this to them? I didn't do this to them, but your kids lie because they do. It's just this human nature piece. He's saying this, you have inside of you things that are insatiable, that you'll never, you'll always be chasing. Your life is a constant chase, trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose, trying to find whatever, satisfaction in life, trying to find happiness. One of those things that you'll chase is an acquire for more possessions. He's speaking to peasants who don't have much, by the way. He's speaking to people who don't have anything saying, be careful, be careful. You're gonna spend your life chasing after more and more possessions. Number two, our vision of the good life will never be achieved through such an accumulation of surpluses. A good life is essentially his, like the, the way of saying that. What is that life that you hope to have? What's that vision of, you know, I'll be happy when, or I'll be satisfied when. That's always like the, the vision of the good life. Your vision of the good life will never be um, uh, achieved through such an accumulation of surpluses. It's true that a certain minimum of material goods is necessary for life, but it does not hold that more goods always, equals a higher, uh, always equals a higher quality of life. You know this to be true. You know that your happiness in life, you know, is kind of dependent a little bit on material possessions. Let's not just say like money means nothing. It does mean something. It, it means when you have a home that you can live in, when you have a home that is safe to raise a child in, uh, to do life with another person, to um, to invite friends over, to to be able to go out and have fun with friends and, and do all that. Like there is a certain amount of uh, in which like money is necessary for a certain level of happiness. But you read any secular book on happiness, they'll say this. Then it gets to a point where um, there is not equal distribution of income and, and money that equates to happiness. At some point, more money doesn't always reach the same level of, of happiness. In fact, your happiness can begin to decline as you get more money too. So it's like, this is, this is what he's trying to kind of come around with. This is the story. The clear implication is that even if you get what you're asking for, you may not feel entirely satisfied or justified. He knows this about this brother asking for it. You want me to put my stamp of approval on your division, but I'm not really a divider. And by the way, even if and when, because you're right, even when you get this, don't be surprised when you're not satisfied. When you walk away and go, all right, that's over with, but what, what is that gnawing thing within me that's still there? So he's gonna go into a parable. He's gonna go into a, there once was a certain rich man who uh, had a bunch of stuff, right? And before we do, uh, before we get there, you, you know, we, we've said this is supposed to be through peasant eyes. What would they know? What kind of backdrop would they have? When Jesus is about to tell this story, what are they familiar with? When it comes to wealth and stories and God and religion and all that kind of stuff, what do they know? One of the things they know comes from Psalm chapter 49. Uh, uh, verse 16 and 17. It says, do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their house is increases, when they add on a third car garage with a bonus room on top. I added that just to kind of put it in you know, f- you know, perspective for all of us, right? Uh, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. 
Now, you know this, you read secular books on money and finance and all this kind of stuff, and they always say, you know, it's happiness is not dependent on this, and um, you, you don't get to take anything with you. Nobody's ever um, seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse, right? Like that's, we know how that sort of stuff and language works. It's kind of what we expect a little bit from, especially from religion too, then you add on uh, the piece uh, with that. But I, I like this idea that their splendor will not descend with them as if we're com- kind of communicating where we think they're gonna go. You know what I mean? But for them, it wasn't hell. It would be some sort of Sheol, sort of nothingness that they would go into the ground, whatever. Anyways, verse 20, people who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. This would, these would be songs that they would sing. This comes from their songbook. When do they sing this? When you get rich, when you've been blessed, when you see others get blessed. These are the songs we sing to recognize where we stand in relation to our wealth. Not only that, there would be another book that I've referenced as a part of this series. It's called the book of Ben Sirach, or some translations are the the book of Ecclesiasticus. It's not probably in the Bible that you own. Uh, It's considered to be one of the apocryphal books, meaning it was one of the teachings that was in circulation at the time that Jesus was around, but the church deemed it not really necessary for the Old Testament or the New Testament. It probably happened in in between that period of the Old Testament and the New Testament, so like that intermedial period. Uh, These would be writings from rabbis and teachings, and they would call it midrash or commentary uh, on what, what's happening with this. Um, if you grew up Catholic, you, your Bible might have an apocryphal section. That might, it might be in there for that. But um, I, I only bring it up because this would be stuff that they're familiar with. They would be familiar with Psalm chapter 49, and they would also be familiar with um, Sirach chapter 11, verse 19 through, 19 through 20, which says this, a man grows rich by his sharpness and grabbing, and here's the regard he receives for it. He says, I have found rest and now I can enjoy my good. But he does not know how long this will last. He will have to leave his goods for others and die. Now, they would be, they, this would be, a, again, a story that's in circulation. And this sounds like, if I, if I did this, that could be in any of the gospels. That sounds like a teaching of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds pretty familiar to us. Even when we read that, we'd be like, it's either scriptural or, uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki said it in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or some sort of a like finance book around here or whatever, right? I mean, these are, this is kind of common sort of stuff. With this backdrop, we see that Jesus is dealing with a theme already well known in the eyes of his audience. And we would see this sort of, language or this sort of, these sort of proverbs or these sort of words of advice about the danger of wealth or whatever, sort of is like, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is kind of what rich people tell poor people. They would say that, right? Don't, guys, don't be jealous of me. I have it really hard. It's hard to be a rich person. You're like, as a poor person, you're like, oh, really, is it? Sounds pretty, I'd like to try it sometime, you know? I'm okay with it. You're trying to ask me for pity and I'm like, I'm not gonna give it to you. For us in the, uh, in the poor position, we would say, oh, the only thing worse than being rich is being poor. I'd like to try that for a change. Let's try that out. What's important is what Jesus does with this. Instead of just regurgitating a story that they would be familiar with and be like, oh yeah, yeah, we've heard this. Ben Sirach talked about it. We have a psalm about this, Jesus. We know this. Notice what Jesus does that's a little bit different with this, okay? In his story, things change just tweaked a little bit. I think it's critically important. Sirach's story is about somebody who grows rich, right? A man grows rich. He wasn't rich. He grows rich. How does he grow rich? By his sharpness and grabbing by his ability to kind of achieve and do and, and, and his, his, his wisdom and his wit and his smartness and his, and his job and his effectiveness. And, and, it's, and it's a good thing. He grows rich by this. But Jesus, in Jesus' story, it's about a man who's been gifted extra wealth from God. Somebody who is already rich, has a field, 
and there's a bumper crop that comes in. He did nothing to kind of uh, take this in. He just, he's just there to receive it. He's like, I, I expected this much. This is more than what I worked for. What I've received is not equivalent to what the effort of the effort of, that I put in. What am I gonna do with all of this surplus? In the first story, in Ben Sirach's story, it's what must I do with my earnings? All of these things that I've grabbed and earned and all of this like work ethic has earned me this. What do I do with this? But in Jesus' story, it's what must I do with the extra that which I have not earned? I've done some of this, but I've kind of been blessed big time. Sirach's character grows rich. Jesus' character is already rich and he's about to get richer. So that's who Jesus is talking about. So anybody hearing this for the first time would be like, oh, I see what you're kind of doing. You're kind of bringing in stuff that we're familiar with, but it's tweaking it a little, a little bit. This is somebody who is already rich, who then gets more with this. We're not told how he became rich. There's no comment on the legitimacy or illegitimacy of his wealth. He didn't earn it. He doesn't need it. And his problem is what to do with unearned surpluses. So it says this in the text, going back to the uh, text that we have in Luke and he discussed with himself, saying, what shall I do for I have no place to store my crops? There's two things that are important in this phrase right here. One is this word, and he discussed with himself, saying, which uh, the, the, the formation of the Greek or the verb in the Greek gives us like this continuous past. In other words, he thought about this for a while. This was an ongoing conversation with himself. There's no real thought of, I don't really need any of this. I'm already wealthy. Nor does he mention the extra wealth is a gift for which I can take no credit. God has given the increase. But he's having this discussion with himself about this. What am I gonna do for I, and this is the second part, for I have no place to store, look at the pronoun there, my crops, my crops, my things, all of these things that I have. First century peasants would have noticed his use of pronouns there, but the bigger piece they would have noticed is this. Why is he discussing this alone? Why is he discussing this alone? Life was lived in these communities in very, very tight-knit communities. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, when, when people's wealth increased, when they had success, uh, when their kids were, were married, everybody knew about it. And everyone went to the parties. If, if your uh, animal was, was accidentally killed or ran over or something like that, they would know and be like, so sorry for your loss. Um, when, when your bumper crop comes in and, and they would know, for whatever reason, this land produced twice as much as this land over here. That's God's blessing on your life. Congratulations, whatever, right? They would know everything about this. The men of the village would literally, it would say they would sit at the gate. They would go to the gate, which is essentially as like the hub of, of the marketplace. Um, and th this would be where all of the business transactions would take place. When you made a trade, when we traded land or when we sold land and we had to do this, it we send it now to a title company, but this they would go to the gate and they would be like, hey, this is where we kind of handle our transactions. And transactions, whether they were involved in them or not, would be points of discussion in the way that they are for a lot of people. Whenever we talk about, well, did you hear about this and this? And then we talk and talk and talk and do one of our things, right? We, we, we have discussions about this sort of thing. My dad, I, I, I thought about this this week. My dad retired like six months ago calls me to discuss everything constantly about him. Um, he did it before he was retired. It's only gotten worse, guys. Now he talks to me about what he thinks he might cook for dinner tonight or smoke on the Traeger, right? So that's the, that's the status where we're at. This life of community, I don't make these decisions alone. I invite people in to do these sorts of things. The text does not read, and he said to himself, which we have those, that sort of blanket briefness in other parables, um, but in this one, it's, it's very clear that Jesus is trying to say, 
he has been discussing these things amongst themselves. He's not doing this in community with other people. He's making these decisions by his own. He doesn't have a group, he doesn't have a text string of buddies that he texts and be like, hey, so this happened, whatever. He doesn't have old men who like to sit together at Spud Nuts and have a donut and coffee every morning because I see them all the time. Don't worry, like it's a, it's a community. It's a thing, it happens. He obviously has nobody else with whom to talk. He trusts nobody, has no friends or cronies with him who he can exchange ideas. When he needs a dialogue, he can only talk to himself. And this, I think, is what a peasant hearing Jesus tell his story would notice in big, giant, bold letters. Jesus is painting a picture of the kind of prison that wealth can sometimes build if you'll allow it to. He has the money to buy a vacuum and live in it, and life in this vacuum creates its own realities and it tells its own stories. That's what a first century peasant would notice about Jesus' twist on the story of somebody who grows wealthy and what do I do with all my surpluses? And doesn't go to his friends and be like, what do I do? What should I invest in? What's the, what's the, what do you think it is? He just tells himself this own stuff. And then, because money has this very insulating feature to it, right? Money can insulate you from a lot of different kinds of pain. Uh, it's amazing. You should have, a, 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 talk to any financial advisor and they would say, you need to have an emergency you know, nest egg so that you can survive a really bad week. You have a bad week, there's nothing that like $2,000 can't help you out with in terms of a bad week. You know what I mean? That can get you through a lot of bumps and pains. Has an insulating feature to it, but can also be so insulating that you all of a sudden crowd out everything in your world and everything all, the only thing that then matters is your wealth. I uh, talked to my wife about this stuff that we were gonna be talking about on Sunday in, in the car the other day. And she mentioned that she had just listened to um, a podcast Bono was on Smartless like two weeks ago. I don't know if you listen to Smartless, um, but you should. And you should not tell everybody that your pastor told you that you should, but you should. And uh, Bono, lead singer for U2, I hope I don't even have to say that, but I figured I would. Um, and he was asked by uh, Jason Bateman, uh, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes are the hosts of this. And it is fantastic. It's really, really great. Um, was asked by, I think, I think it was Jason, hey, 40 years, long time to be bandmates. Um, how did you guys kind of stick together? How do you do this? When so many bands start off good, then they make it big, and then somebody goes off and does their own solo projects, and then the band just breaks up, or, you know, life on the road, where they get money. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, they, you get money and you don't need people anymore. And so you, you just kind of, you know, break up, and that's what happens. We've seen that over and over again. In fact, that seems to be the pattern versus sticking around for 40 plus years, continuing to come out with this and staying friends. You guys are still friends. One of the guys, Sean says, I was dining with the edge uh, last week and he said, you guys still hang out. You guys are like still buddies. And they're like, we live a hundred yards from each other. How do you do that? How do you do that after you've struck it that big? And Bono's response was something like this. When you really know somebody, you know their memories. You know how they got them. You're part of m many of them, but you know, you know where they came from and you know the memories that they have in their life. And when you know the memories that somebody has in their life, you're able to say some things to them when they stray too far from who they actually are for you to challenge them and say, that's not really you anymore. You're not really you. He says, I've been lucky enough to have three guys in my life who've kind of, when I've kind of drifted off based on our success or our money or whatever, to be like, hey, that's not really you anymore. And pull me back. And the willingness, he says, the, the extra, the second step in that part is, am I willing to continue to listen to those types of people? 
Because the hard part sometimes is that you can get so far down there and so rich and so insulated and so whatever that you don't need, you don't think you need to listen to those people anymore or you think that they don't really know me anymore or they knew the old me, but this is the new me or whatever. And, and he says in, in a joke or in a joking way, he says, our band is broken because Jason said, well, how have you not broken up? He's like, we break up all the time. We just don't tell everybody. We just get back together before we go on the next tour. But yeah, we've broken up multiple times. Uh, and, and it's fantastic, and I, and I loved it, and it, and it really kind of illustrated a little bit of this, this insulating feature of this wealth that has a negative tendency to force us to feel like we can do life alone and independent of other people. And I think Jesus is trying to say this. He's trying to communicate this, even if this goes through, and when it goes through, because it's your right and all that kind of injustice or whatever. Just do you know what it's doing to you? Do you see what it's doing to your psyche? Do you see what it's doing to your person? Do you see where you're at? He goes back, to go back to the story, and he, and he said this, this, this builder who built all the surpluses, here's what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns, I'll build larger barns, I'll steal all my grain and all my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, I love that, because in the Hebrew, they, they, that's what they say. They said it's nefesh, but they go, and I'll say to my, my nefesh, nefesh, I'll say to the core of my being, I'll say to myself, not my body, not my mind, but my essence, who I am as a person, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourselves. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Who does he tell when he feels like he's finally arrived? When I've arrived, I'll tell dot, dot, dot. And he says, my soul. It's interesting because you parallel this with other parables and the stories that Jesus would tell. Woman, when the woman loses her coin in her house and she's destitute and poor and finds it, she's overjoyed. And what does she say? I called my neighbors up to come help me celebrate. Luke 15, when, uh, to continue that, there's three of them. When the man loses the one sheep, he leaves the 99 to go find the one and he brings it back. What does he do? He tells his friends, guys, I found it. Can you believe it? What are the odds? Needle in a haystack. When the father loses his son to the ways of the world, splits the inheritance, sends him on his way, the prodigal son who spends it all, wastes it all, and eventually comes back, the father runs out to meet him. And then he turns to the servant and says, go tell the village, we're throwing a party, my son has come home. And guess who shows up? His village, his people. Whenever, things, whenever something good happens in their life, they have someone to tell. When something good happens in the life of this person, in this parable, in this fictional story, he's got nobody to tell but himself. That's the difference in the story that Jesus is telling from what they're used to. And perhaps from our perspective, we just miss. And we never read into all of this. But God said to him in that moment, fool, this night your soul is required of you and what you've prepared Whose will these things be? And I don't think this is like some sort of uh, coming down on him being like, now you're going to die, right, because of this. I think that the statement here is on this night, your soul is required of you. you this is the night that you die. This is, again, it's not, I don't think it's a real person, um, but I, I do think it, what he's trying to say is eventually we all die. And on the night that you die, what are you going to realize? You've prepared all of these things. You have all of this stuff and you don't even know who these things will go to. Who gets your stuff 
when you leave. You've got no relationships. You've got no nothing. And the word that he uses is fool. I love it. Because there's four different words for fool in the New Testament that are used in a bunch of different ways. And they mean different things to different categories of people. The first one, I'm not going to try and pronounce it for you because it doesn't matter. But the first one just basically means uh, without thinking. Like you've done foolish things without thinking, right? You, 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 you've done some things where you're like, why did you do that? And you're like, I just, I'm, I'm an idiot and I wasn't thinking. That's foolish, but you know, whatever. That's fine. That's pretty innocent, right? Then there's one that's without wisdom. Without wisdom, which basically means out of ignorance. I just didn't know it was right. It's not the right thing and I'm acting foolishly, but there's some grace involved because you just didn't know what was right. And then the third one um, is the word moros, which, which honestly, it, it, where we get the English word moronic. You've done some foolish things and it's sort of moronic. Remember when you were a 16 year old boy and your body was too big for your brain and you were what you'd call moronic? And the officer was like, why would you do that? And you're like, I don't know, I have no idea. Yeah, we've all been moronic. And then the last one, this is the fourth, this is the most aggressive. And they go, you invested a substantial amount in Dogecoin. That's the fourth <laughs> word for fool. And I'm just kidding on that. If you did, I, uh, sorry, uh, I'm sorry for you, but uh, that's not really what it means. But Afron, it, it, it's like this aggressive, like even worse than moronic. This is stupid. Base stupidity is basically the word for this. And there's some wordplay going on uh, with this in terms of the Hebrew that I don't want to get into. But he's, say, he's basically saying, you're, you think your life's going to be great. You have all of this stuff, but really you're just a moron. You think you're going to be smart. You got, a cool, you got all kinds of great surpluses of things, but you're really just idiotic stupidity. You've settled for idiotic stupidity. The sting of the words in, some, in a, somebody's uh, words commentary on this uh, lies not in the announcement that the man must die, but in the following question, which cl- shows clearly the real poverty of his life. He's lonely and friendless in the midst of his wealth. His life has been about accumulation of stuff, which has been great if you're all about you. If your whole thing is about the uh, you know, bigness of yourself, if, the, if your story, if you're the central character in your story and you're building it all about you and all about your brand and about your thing and about your profile and about your resume, this is probably really great to be really, really wealthy. But if it's not about that, then, then perhaps you're actually losing. And it's not... The chastisement from God in this story or the character, the voice of God in this story is not criticizing in the way of you should have done different things with your money. Why didn't you give it to poor people? As we try and do sometimes like, you know, if, if there's protests against the, t- the top 1% or 2%, it's how can you uh, live this way in light of the, you know, what, the, poverty, this, the poverty line of, of this and you live in this house and you drive by all this stuff. We, we can do that. We can cast all these things. But the reality is those kinds of people have all kinds of answers for this. And this person would be the same way. If, if, if Jesus had said these accusations, there's all, all kinds of different stories that can be told or reasoning that comes with this. But Jesus takes a different approach that isn't accusatory, but forces this person into introspection. Look at what you've done. Look at you. Look at what you've done to yourself. You plan alone, you build alone, and now unfortunately you're gonna die alone. And you won't even know who or what gets your things when you are not here. The fool's wealth destroyed his capacity to maintain any abiding human relationships. He's got no one with whom he can share his soul. And worst of all, he's not even aware he's got a problem. 
And it didn't actually happen for him. But Jesus is trying to address an issue that he sees with the person who's crying out for injustice, which he's like, I am about justice and I can help you. I can, I can see where you're coming from with this. But just so you know, sometimes when you get what you want, you don't always get what you need. There's songs about that. You've heard it before. You're singing it right now. Um, but that's the reality. That's the story that's going on with this. That's the challenge. That's what Jesus wants his audience to get. Mind you, an audience who are peasants, who have almost nothing, and yet Jesus still feels qualified to tell them, don't let your life be about an accumulation of stuff, to which most of them are like, don't worry, we've never had a bank account. Don't worry, we've never had anything. If that is true, if Jesus felt it was so important for them to hear it, how about me and how about you and how about us who are far more likely to allow our wealth to insulate us, to start doing things about for ourselves and only for ourselves, to be about the acquisition of things and, and, and never really questioning what to do. And his response is left open-ended like all of the ones that we've done so far. There's no... There's no happy ending. There's no uh, bow tie at the end. There's no, then three ghosts appeared in his bedroom and then he woke up in the morning and bought a turkey for Tiny Tim. <laughs> I mean, that kind of sounds a little bit like the story and how you'd want it to end. And all of a sudden, well, Ebenezer Scrooge kind of finally saw the light. There is no light at the end of the day for this. Jesus doesn't answer. People don't go, what happened to the rich man? He's like, this is a choose your own adventure. That guy didn't actually exist, but what are you gonna do with this? That's the call to action for us. And the audience is left to go, what am I going to do? Am I going to build up myself? I'm gonna, am I going to leverage wealth as a resource for building my own personal brand or self? Or am I going to build it up for God? Or am I going to build it up for the sake of other people? Am I going to be in relationship? Am I going to do life in community? That when good things happen, I get to celebrate in community. When good things, when blessings come my way and when surpluses come my way, I call up my friends and say, hey, can you believe this? This is incredible. And I don't, it's not like, oh, I give everything away for this. That's not what he's trying to say with this. But he's saying, do you have people that celebrate with you? to mourn with you, to go through life with you, that's community, that's what it's about. Don't fall, money has this isolating thing. That's not what you're supposed to be. Money's a, to, a tool to be used, it's a resource to be leveraged. But please watch, be on guard, keep your head on a swivel when it comes to this because it can be so insulating that you'll find yourself doing life in isolation and you just don't wanna be there. You just don't wanna be there. So may we. Maybe the type of people who have a great understanding of money. I'm not preaching poverty is the only way. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. I want us to be really smart, rich people. I think Jesus is trying to say, I want, I want to have really smart, rich people who leverage their money, not just for themselves, but for the sake of the kingdom, which includes people and others and people that you love, people that you know, people that you don't know. But may we be the type of people who understand that and don't find ourselves saying, God, injustice, build up my case for myself. Tell, tell your, your followers, tell your, your you got to do what they know is right. I have rights, I have this. Jesus like, check your assumptions, bro. Check your assumptions because you're all about yourself and it's a broken way and it's a lonely way, it really is. I'm not going to critique you for doing it, but I'm, I'm going to ask you are, you, are you happy? I mean, do you feel like you're happy now? I mean, is, can you see that you have a problem? Can you see that it's, it's actually hurting you, this drive, this... Or you're lost to it.
head on a swivel. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us navigate this thing called life and the, uh, uh, the blessings that you bestow and, and both monetary and, and in relationships and all of that. I pray that we would continue to recognize doing life in community and with others is the best way and uh, that we would, uh, yeah, be able to see money as, as a resource and as a tool to be used and uh, for your glory and not for our own personal glory. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life and the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.